Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Caroline Humer. I'm a correspondent at Reuters and today's moderator. We're here to talk about public health and drug pricing. It's a topic that has grabbed many headlines. Last year, a brand new drug for hepatitis C called Silvaldi hit the market at $84,000 for an average treatment price of $1,000 per pill. Just last week, a Canadian-based pharmaceutical company disclosed it's being investigated by U.S. federal government over drug pricing, distribution, and its patients' assistance programs. Recently, the price of a generic drug combination called Daraprim to treat toxoplasmosis increased overnight to $750 a pill from $1,350. The company defended its price, but also said it would roll it back. That hasn't happened, but yesterday, a competitor said it's headed onto the market with a $1 pill. These price jumps are happening among both branded and generic drugs. The latter has historically been a reliably low source of treatment in the United States but the cost of drugs is rising, about 13% last year total U.S. spending on drugs and estimated to be over a trillion dollars this year. This forum will explore factors that drive drug costs and prices, the impacts of these costs, and approaches to address the balance between corporate profits and patient treatment. We'll look at the U.S. and spend some time talking about why prices here are substantially higher than in many other countries. Today's program is an hour long and is a collaboration of the forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Reuters and is in association with Harvard Health Publications. It is also part of the Dr. Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn forums. Today's panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Aaron Kesselheim, Director of the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Stephen Pearson, President of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Lowell Schnipper, Chair of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's Value in Cancer Care Task Force and Chief of Hematology Oncology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Meredith Rosenthal, Professor of Health Economics and Policy at the Harvard Chan School. This program will include a brief Q&A and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum site right now. We're going to start now with the video. The subject of drug pricing has become fodder for the campaign trail. Let's take a look at Hillary Clinton recently announcing her plan. And it is time to deal with skyrocketing out-of-pocket costs and runaway prescription drug prices that are going up last year by 12 percent. I mean, it's disgraceful. Go online, read this article in the New York Times today about a pill that is really important, and the company decided rather than uh, continue to charge a small amount, they would up it to $750, a pill, for no good reason. Medications for a lot of diseases are going up to thousands of dollars a month. And when you look at that article that I referenced, to go in one day, from $13.50 to $750 because the company said it needed more profits. 
I, I am announcing a detailed plan to crack down on these abuses. There's no excuse. Look, we, we want companies to get a fair return. That's the way our system works. There's no excuse from going from $13.50 to $750 for one pill. We're going to start by capping how much you have to pay out of pocket for prescription drugs each month. And we're going to start holding the drug companies accountable to drive down the prices. Nobody in America should have to choose between buying the medicine they need and paying their rent. Well, that clip demonstrates some pretty strong reactions to high drug costs. Aaron directs a center that researches how regulations and laws impact drug prices. I wonder if you could just give us a snapshot of where the U.S. stands with drug prices, how we got here, what the main challenges are. Sure, thanks, and, and thanks for inviting me to this panel. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, drug prices uh, account for about 10 to 12 percent of healthcare spending, which accounts for uh, about a $375 billion marketplace. And increases in drug spending are, are mostly due to the cost of brand name drugs, with even older brand name drugs costs rising about 10 or 15 percent each year. And in particular, due to the cost of specialty drugs, which are high cost drugs that, even though they account for less than 1 percent of all the prescriptions that we have, um, account for about 30 percent of drug costs. So these drugs command high prices because there's little restrictions on the prices manufacturers set um, and little effective drug competition um, in the marketplace for a, a variety of reasons. Um, basically, the price of a drug is whatever the manufacturer says it is in the U.S. Unlike most countries, the U.S. government cannot set prices, even though government programs um, pay prescription drug costs for over 100 million people. Um, the FDA, for example, has no authority to regulate drug prices or any of the economics of the industry. The FDA can only require that safety and efficacy data be gathered for potential <laughs> new products. Um, but even that, even in that case, the FDA lacks the ability to require that that information is, is useful in helping determine the value of a drug. So drugs can be approved by the FDA on the basis of single-arm studies in which they're not tested against anything else, or they're tested against placebos, or against regimens that don't contain other high-cost drugs and therefore aren't optimally helpful in medical decision-making. Medicare, for example, covers drug costs for about 70 million people, but by law cannot negotiate drug prices, um, and, and there are limitations on its ability to, to make adjustments to its formulary. Medicaid similarly has uh, limitations on its formulary uh, setting ability, which limits its ability to, to negotiate drug prices. Actually, the only part of the government that can negotiate prices is the VA, and not surprisingly, the VA gets the best prices that right now on, on, on drugs. Um, it's not much better in the private market where the existence of many payers reduces anyone's ability to lower drug prices. So, you know, high drug costs are, are inevitable because new drugs require substantial upfront investment to develop and discover, and drug companies rely on periods of market exclusivity established by patents and other government protections, um, during which time they make back their investments and make profits. The problem is, is that these market exclusivity periods are not well suited to differentiating between a high cost, a high value and a low value product. So the first statin on the market gets generally the same protections as the eighth statin on the market. Um, the only time that really changes is when a drug goes generic and then state drug product substitution laws allow the substitution of low price products 
leading to price competition. Although that breaks down in the case of the in the of Daraprim, as you said, where it's a very small market that doesn't attract uh, uh, generic uh, manufacturers. Another issue is where these all these costs go, and in fact, much of the revenues go to large pharmaceutical manufacturers, one of the most profitable sectors in the United States in the last 30 years. But large pharmaceutical manufacturers only spend about 15 or 20 percent of their <laughs> revenues on research and development, and actually, much of that goes to incremental changes to products that they already have. Um, by contrast, about 30% of their revenues goes to marketing and administration, and a similar fraction is returned to shareholders. The evidence is that most transformative drugs that we have today arise from fundamental basic and translational science work currently funded by government resources and conducted in academic research centers and government laboratories. So I guess in summary, I would say that there are three main challenges. The first is the lack of a competitive pharmaceutical marketplace for a variety of reasons, including legal restrictions on payers' negotiating ability and a lack of information that would allow for cost-effective decision-making. Um, second is a legal and regulatory environment in which drug manufacturers are allowed to set prices to maximize profit without any relation to the clinical value that the products are providing. Um, and third, a mismatch between the sources of truly transformative medical innovation and where these high revenues end up going, leading to substantial waste and inefficiency in developing the next generation of important drugs. Um, when we're talking about the, the value and affordability of these drugs, I wonder if, Steve, you could talk a little bit about you know, what this price-setting landscape looks like right now. Oh, absolutely. Um, and thank you also. It's a pleasure to be here and to, to follow Aaron. So absolutely, just as, as Aaron said, the, the landscape in the United States is very different than what we see internationally. Um, but we have to remember that this is the landscape that Congress has created over the years. And it's meant to reflect a desire to host a very vibrant and innovative pharmaceutical sector in our economy. So there are lots of different pieces to this. Pricing is a piece of it, but as, again, as Aaron pointed out, there's the whole regulatory chain through the way that the FDA is working. There's the way that Medicare, essentially unique in the industrialized world as a major federal payer, is unable to really look at the comparative effectiveness, consider the cost, and use that in some way in negotiating a, a price. Um, there's the fact that we have thousands of individual private insurers. And even when they try to kind of combine forces, they end up being a relatively small footprint in the, in the business world when it comes to negotiating with a large pharmaceutical company. So they could threaten to walk away and take their business somewhere else to try to get a better price, but they just don't have the same leverage. And so that's why, one of the reasons that the prices are, are, are higher in the United States. Um, there are lots of other reasons. Um, obviously, everything in healthcare in the United States is more expensive. A night in the hospital, a visit with a doctor, it's going to be ex more expensive here. So in some sense, if a drug is helpful in preventing hospitalizations or preventing extra doctor's visits, we might want to assume that its price might be higher too. But I think we've reached a tipping point, and I think uh, Secretary Clinton's comments and many others have, have coalesced around this idea that we just feel that somehow there's an, there's an imbalance. There's an imbalance in the incentives out there that are meant to really spur innovation, but have to do so in a way that's affordable to patients and to the healthcare system. So it's not that surprising that um, among all the different kind of uh, factoids uh, out there, there was, a, there was a really important survey done by Kaiser Family Foundation recently. And 75% of Americans said that helping make drugs more affordable should be the number one priority for the President and Congress. 
And this was essentially a bipartisan finding, and it's really rare these days to find a majority, a vast majority of Democrats and Republicans agreeing with one thing. Now, what's interesting is that you will also we'll probably talk more about mechanisms later, but in some of the approaches discussed already, there is this idea that we want to help individual patients not really suffer financially or clinically if they have problems affording their drugs. And we want some kind of process to try to bring prices into alignment with value in a way that is affordable for patients and the healthcare system. To me, it's really important to view those as two combined approaches because either one by itself, I think, won't really get patients what they need in the short term or in the long term. Now, I have a couple of slides that I know that we were going to, to show just to, to show a little bit about how does this landscape play out. Um, and there are, again, lots of different ways to look at this. I'll cherry pick a few specific drugs. But in the far right-hand bar is the price, the average price paid for a drug called Copaxone, which is used to treat multiple sclerosis. It's a commonly used drug. And as you can see, its price is vastly higher than the price for the exact same drug in other industrialized countries, such as Switzerland, Spain, the Netherlands, etc. And this is just one drug. Another drug on the next slide is an important drug that uh, I know Dr. Schnipper may talk about. Gleevec as uh, a drug for cancer. Its price has actually risen dramatically since it was first introduced, and it's being used in a lot more patients. But just on the kind of per drug price, its price is about twice as high as any other country in the world. The last slide shows that if you try to look at a basket of drugs, these, I believe, these are the top 20 drugs uh, by 2014 sales. And the price on the left, what you see on the price on the right is, in a sense, the multiple of the price in the United States when it's compared to the price paid in England. So you can see it ranges from twice as high to almost 10 times as high. And I believe the largest study trying to look at the broadest set of drugs has found that, in general, drugs overseas cost two to I'm sorry, our drugs here cost two to six times more expensive. They're more expensive than um, overseas. And that's because of the landscape that Aaron described and some of the factors that, that I mentioned as well. That's the current situation we're in. And after years in which drug overall spending seemed relatively flat as it grew with the overall healthcare spending pie, we now seem to be tilting upwards again, where drug cost price and cost increase is going to be generating increased overall costs. And that's primarily because we've kind of gone through a tremendous phase of about 10 to 15 years of having patients take generic drugs instead of brand name drugs wherever possible. But we've kind of exhausted that approach. Mm -hmm. It helped create headroom for innovation. And now we're just kind of lopping new prices and costs on top. And the underlying question is, how do we know when a price represents good value? Because a high price might be right. So this seems like a good time to turn to Lowell and talk about cancer drugs. Um, they obviously, we've got a lot of treatments out there that are very expensive, that cost more than $100,000. And most recently, we've got the combination approved of Yervoy and Updevo by the FDA, which will be a $250,000 treatment. 
Um, you chair the American Society of Clinical Oncology's Valuing Cancer Care Task Force, and I'm hoping that you can talk to us a little bit about, about the sort of state of cancer drug pricing and how these, uh, how, how we're going to cope with these combination therapies and others that are becoming increasingly expensive. Happy to do so, and thanks for inviting my participation. Our interest in uh, understanding the value of cancer therapies and trying to develop a model with which to uh, understand it um, goes back to about seven or eight years when ASCO, the Society for Clinical Oncology, initiated um, a task force on the cost of cancer care. You'll note it's been renamed more recently. At that time, the uh, escalating cost of healthcare in the U.S. was on everyone's mind. And we felt as responsible stewards of um, the, our patient population, we needed to address cost in the larger sense and begin to teach oncologists to be sensitive to this. Um, we looked at the drivers of, of uh, the rising cost of cancer care, and there are many. Drugs are one of them, but also a, um, a, a reimbursement system that actually uh, biased uh, in favor of utilizing expensive drugs uh, when alternatives that are less costly might be available. And indeed, it's not just drugs. It's almost every type of technology that we began to think about, robotic surgery, proton beam therapy, much of which doesn't have documented clear advantages over that which is available and a lot less costly. So one of our first um, endeavors of, into this space was to begin to look at waste because uh, um, while thinking about drugs and their utilization and their cost, um, we are keenly aware that there is an enormous amount of unnecessary utilization of drugs um, at inappropriate times. So for example, cancer support drugs, antiemetics, are fabulously expensive and we think they are to some extent not used appropriately with respect to indications. Um, uh, the drugs that are used to generate improved blood counts in the face of cancer chemotherapy or radiation therapy, these are extremely expensive. There are d discrete guidelines that most societies have developed, and yet we understand that about 25% of patients are, are treated independent of these guidelines. Uh, and again, that's really resulting in an enormous price tag to the American people and the individual patient. So as we began to think about, um, is there a way to reduce excessive um, interactions with uh, our, our patients on behalf of uh, helping their care, um, we couldn't help but focus on drugs just because they represent, I think, the steepest trajectory upward in the cost of cancer care. Every aspect of cancer care is expensive, frankly, as Steve alluded to. But since the medical oncologist indeed prescribes drugs to treat cancer, we felt this was our bailiwick. So we decided not to focus on robotic surgery or radiation, but drugs. The principle by which we began to tackle this was that the public deserves, our patients deserve to get what, uh, to pay for what it is that they're getting. And what I mean by that is that if they're getting a therapy with modest impact, there seems to be no price justification that I can uh, understand or that a task force could understand to um, charge outrageous prices. And the contrast you'll see are for Sovaldi, the hepatitis C drug that cures people, costs uh, on an annual basis about as much as many cancer drugs that extend life for just a few months. So the contrast is shocking and therefore it needs to be addressed in some formal way. 
So what we've done is to attempt to develop what we call a value framework, the, uh, our initial step in developing a way in which we can actually codify the clinical benefit, the side effect profile of medications to treat cancer in its various indications and bring to the patient-doctor interface the concept of what it costs to get a certain degree of benefit. I hopefully will have a little more time to discuss this uh, later on in, in, the, uh, in the program, but that basically is what we've set out to do and published a few months ago in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Thank you. And Meredith, I'm wondering now if, if you could talk to us for a little bit about how we could work to sort of slow down this, this drug cost as a factor in healthcare spending, which does include so many other rising costs as well. Great, thank you, and I'm very happy to be able to participate and really build on all of uh, what was said previously. So, so first, I think it's important to remember that in the U.S. context, these drug prices and drug costs are uh, the product of a market. This is a market that is highly regulated uh, and has numerous market failures, and in particular, both patients and physicians in making decisions about drug products are insulated from the costs of those products, making it very challenging to make the usual kinds of assumptions about how markets work to set prices. So when we think about the public policy challenge here, uh, it's also important to keep in mind this, uh, this tension somewhat between what economists think of as static efficiency, do the patients who need these drugs, who benefit from them, get them, and dynamic efficiency, do we get innovation, the right kind of innovation at the right rate? Uh, and every, most every uh, decision we make about changing the way the FDA works, changing how much we constrain these prices, will affect both of those things, and sometimes one negatively, the other positively. So in terms of public policy, most likely our tools for addressing these questions are going to be on the payer side of things. We might think that the FDA would start both demanding and using value information, but that strikes me as a long political battle to get to that point. But payers, including potentially public payers, may be in a position to, uh, to work on this problem through a variety of means. Uh, Senator Clinton, um, Secretary Clinton, I'm not sure what we call her now, <laughs> Candidate Clinton, uh, mentioned uh, co-payments. Uh, and so, you know, the proposal there was intended to protect patients from out-of-pocket cost burden, but that unfortunately would have the unintended effect of shielding these very high prices, again, from the decision makers. You know, for the same reason, Medicare prohibits uh, the use of copay coupons for Medicare beneficiaries because they essentially make those products free uh, to Medicare beneficiaries and therefore there is no discipline uh, regarding cost. Uh, so there's a bit of a trade-off there. Some other strategies that payers might use would include reference pricing, uh, where payers pay for uh, the high-value product in a grouping uh, and require that patients pay the difference if they want another product that is no better and higher cost. Again, there's a bit of a trade-off in putting the onus on patients. Uh, Dr. Schnipper's remarks uh, also 
also raise the potential of educating both patients and their doctors about the out-of-pocket cost and value differentials across these treatments. Uh, and there may be an opportunity for shared decision-making uh, that would really work at the point of care to encourage value to become part of the equation. None of these solutions uh, is complete in and of itself, and none of them are without trade-offs, but some combination of changing the way we pay for drugs on the insurance side uh, and some of the conversation between doctors and patients most likely will move us in the right direction. So from a policy point of view then, what um, we like to call her presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, um, would, when we talk about this uh, capping these out-of-pocket costs, from a policy point of view, that you seem to be saying that that is not necessarily a good idea. Does it work on some level for consumers? It seems like pain relief to me uh, where uh, the the patient is bleeding uh, and now mm -hmm. you've numbed it, uh, but they're still bleeding and you haven't gotten to the root of the problem. So um, some of the other suggestions that she made had to do with negotiating with Medicare or trying to extend some of the Medicaid rebates. Medicaid has the, um, well, other than the VA, as you mentioned before, I think, has the, sort of the lowest prices in the country with a 23% discount. Um, do you think that that would work, negotiating with Medicare? Have we gotten to the point where sort of across the political spectrum that is a desirable outcome? I wonder who might want to. Aaron, maybe? Um, well, yeah, I think so. I think, first of all, that um, the part of the Medicare Part D plan that prevented Medicare from negotiating was a, was a uh, you know, distinctly political choice made um, you know, over a, a decade ago and uh, does not make a lot of sense given the fact that Medicare either sets or negotiates literally every other medical expense, doctor's visits, radiology, hospital beds, everything it pays for, it either sets or negotiates the price for except for um, prescription drugs. So I think that um, changing the law in the way in that way would uh, help a little bit. I think that uh, another part, uh, another thing that will help with that uh, negotiating and decision making is if there is the information in order to um, you know, properly negotiate. So another thing that we lack, even if we gave Medicare the authority to negotiate, is the ability to say, well, you know, drug A is better than drug B, and drug A is you know worse than drug C, and and to be able to f to do those kinds of studies. Um, in order to provide Medicare with the tools it needs to negotiate properly. So that, that I think is another part of the puzzle as well. So maybe, maybe we should just talk a little bit more about those cost effectiveness studies. I don't know um, who would want to jump in here first. I'd like to hear more about ICER. Sure. <laughs> and I'd like to hear more about ASCO's tool. I teed it up for you. You did, you did. I see it right there. Yeah. Just take it from So part of the landscape, as we've discussed, is that we don't have a federal agency that does cost effectiveness in some way to provide Medicare with the answer, which is if Medicare, if you're going to go negotiate, what's the price that you should try to negotiate to? How do we decide that? And I think part of the fear of giving Medicare negotiating power is that it would just try to, it would drive prices down too low, perhaps, and it wouldn't meet the dynamic efficiency goals of, of the future. It would have too short-term a perspective. So again, virtually every other industrialized country has some federal institute or agency that tries to take this on. Since we don't in the United States, my independent institute, ICER, um, has been producing reports and we just received new nonprofit foundation funding to basically ramp up so that within about a year we'll be able to produce a report for virtually every single new FDA drug 
at the time that it's approved by the FDA, where we'll be able to show in an independent analysis what is its comparative clinical effectiveness, how much better does it really help patients, both in the short term and in the long term. And then we're going to look, yes, at costs, both, again, both the short-term affordability issues, but long-term, because we want to make sure that we capture the good long-term value from drugs like Sovaldi. Again, I wouldn't necessarily argue that they got the price right even so, but I do think that we need a way to look at that. And our group is going to be providing these reports to try to trigger a different dialogue about pricing. Now, a dialogue about pricing may mean that a company says, we want to price it here, and somebody else says that the value-based price benchmark is there. How do we get from here to there? And that's still a, an open question. But that's where I think there's been a lot of kind of some new but some old discussion about the different incentives. Because if we're not going to set prices, and in this country I would say that we are millions of miles away from the idea that Medicare is going to have a, a you know, some kind of stamp that's going to say, here's the price for this drug. But maybe we can figure out, and some, in some ways the states may be good laboratories for this, but maybe there's a way to create some incentives, both good and bad, that will help create a business case for manufacturers to have a price that comes close to a value-based price. So we can either, I, I mean, I can tell you about some of those now, but maybe I should just pause and let uh, Lowell tell you a little bit about the ASCO. Yeah, well, yeah. so our framework um, is actually um, intended at the moment to work at the doctor-patient interface. At least that's the way it was constructed. It was not constructed at the moment to be a policy tool. That's actually part two, and that's coming this year, I hope. Um, but part one, meaning um, developing a, a tool that would ultimately be used for shared decision-making was what we were about. And so what we did was basically divine, d divide the um, clinical cancer universe into uh, the segment of advanced cancer, meaning metastatic disease, incurable, needing symptom relief, quality of life becomes an important variable, and um, what we'll call potentially curative cancer or adjunctive medical therapy for cancer. Those are two different arenas with two different sets of expectations, mm -hmm. at least as we um, addressed it. We then set out um, a few relatively simple parameters, although they have been proving very difficult to define to everybody's satisfaction. One is clinical benefit. And so how do you define clinical benefit of combination, new combination A against standard combination therapy B for, let's say, lung cancer? It's pretty hard. So what we decided to do was root this kind of decision-making in the prospective randomized trial, which is really the, um, the highest form of evidence that we can identify in justifying you know, a practice-changing behavior. And so clinical benefit then is defined in our framework as how much different from the standard of care is new treatment A, B, or C. When, when evaluated in the particular clinical trial that's in the published literature. For greater degrees of difference from the standard, we actually accord more points. For modest degrees of difference, fewer. Similarly, for toxicity, since cancer treatments are always associated with negative consequences, um, and that will impact one's quality of life, um, our framework takes into account whether new treatment, uh, a new treatment is in fact less ridden with side effects, about the same or better, and provide or detract points from a score in that regard. 
um, if there are particularly important um, benefits like pain relief in somebody who's racked with pain from prostate, metastatic prostate cancer to the bone, any combination that can deliver that in fact gets some bonuses. So the composite of what we call clinical benefit and toxicity, we rolled up into uh, something we called net health benefit, which w is meant to simply be a quantifiable way of understanding what the interaction between these two critical variables is. But where we depart from th most of the Europeans and other countries in general is that we felt it really important to present the patient with the cost. The cost of the drugs that will give whatever degree of benefit we're describing uh, in discussing a treatment with them, and particularly what their out-of-pocket cost is going to be. We have pretty good information to tell us that patients are actually sensitive to cost to some extent, so that if you sat down and helped somebody understand that a, a given modest benefit was going to basically cost them, um, you know, a child's ha a college tuition, they're going to make some choices that are real-world choices. And we feel that the patient-doctor interface is step one for us because we are appalled at how many Americans are basically going into bankruptcy as a result of these ridiculously high costs. When do you think this will be you know, really integrated in healthcare so that anybody in this room who goes to the doctor is going to have that conversation? Good question. I mean, a lot of my colleagues say, shame on you. You shouldn't be bringing cost into the equation. Uh, although I'd say that's a shrinking minority. I think much more, uh, much more common is that oncologists too are aware that this is something our patients really, you know, depend on us for both advice and, and, and advice that's very, very balanced. What we're trying to do with our um, very cumbersome framework is to uh, um, essentially simplify it and make it pretty much available as an app on an iPhone so that you know, if I've got advanced cancer of the X uh, and I'm a, you know, a, a concert cellist and I do not want to have neuropathy because it's going to not let me use my fingers to play my cello, um, we want an app that will help overvalue toxicity, meaning prevention thereof, mm -hmm. even at the expense of how long one survives because there may be people who choose that. So what we need is a personalized tool, not a one-size-fits-all. And that's where we're headed. Step two will be to make this a simplified vehicle that we think can facilitate a conversation uh, involving shared decision making. Next year? The year after next year? Next year. Next year. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so, Meredith, you know, you mentioned um, reference pricing before for drugs. And I'm trying to understand when we're talking about making a personalized decision about what drug is best for you. But reference pricing is generally not a personalized decision the way I conceive of it. So can you explain how that might really work? Sure, absolutely. And, the, and I uh, uh, <coughs> finished my comments earlier with none of these solutions is, uh, fixes all problems. And so with reference pricing, you need a set of equivalent treatments on, for the average patient. Mm -hmm. uh, so all, as you know, uh, drug uh, effects and side effects are quite individualized. We're talking about a distribution. Uh, and for any one patient, they will be different across products. Uh, but uh, so with reference pricing, we would look at the average cost effectiveness, comparative effectiveness of a set of products. Uh, and the, the payer, uh, an insurer, for example, 
could say, we will pay for the second lowest uh, cost drug within this class. We believe they're equivalent on average. If for you, the side effects that Dr. Schnipper referred to are very important and that is a higher cost drug, then uh, you would pay more in order to get that drug. You would have the opportunity to get that drug and it would be reimbursed in part, but not completely. Uh, so there will absolutely be differential effects. Uh, but the idea around reference pricing is not so much uh, just about these static effects in that it'll drive people to the lower cost drugs, but dynamically, it means that those higher cost drugs will think twice about how they set their prices. And so that, I believe, is what Steve was referring to in terms of the incentives, the business case for setting prices that are more consistent with value. If your price is out of line with your value and only those patients who really want that product are going to get it because of this reference price, those manufacturers will be encouraged for business reasons to bring down their prices. And so, you know, just to get back to the current environment, the business reasons to set, um, as, uh, sorry, presidential candidate Clinton <laughs> says, uh, you know, a fair or reasonable price, the business reasons are not there. So we're, you know, we're in this somewhat awkward situation where the market will bear much higher prices. Um, do we expect manufacturers simply to set lower prices because we think it's fair? We really need incentives and policies that encourage reward and constrain pricing. Uh, otherwise, we'll continue to have these conversations. So uh, that, that sounds like um, we need more transparency. And there are, but we're talking about sort of private private enterprise building up transparency. But there there are also some states um, that have tried to push this in through their legislatures. And I wondered, Aaron, if you could just talk to us a little bit about whether or not that will work, and um, which states have had some success. Sure, and I think I think this actually goes to exactly what Meredith was talking about, which is the idea uh, and, and uh, the idea of trying to be more transparent about the costs that go into drug development, in um, as being another factor involved in determining what the proper price of a drug should be. And so there have been some state initiatives around um, trying to pass legislation requiring greater disclosure about the costs of uh, of drug development, which are right now shrouded in a lot of in a lot of secrecy, um, but I think that it is relevant. For example, so take the case of Savaldi, which I think you know a lot of people agree is a is a transformative and important drug. We actually do have a, a, a lot of uh, knowledge about the cost of the development of it, um, you know, due to other factors, in, including the fact that the the manufacturer of it basically bought it at the um, cusp of its being FDA approved. Um, for $11 billion. And, uh, you know, within the first year of it being on the market had already made back um, its investment. And so now each additional, um, you know, 10 to $15 billion <laughs> a year it makes on this drug is, is profit for this drug. And, um, and, I, and, you know, we also have some information about the cost that went into the development of it before that. You know, there was the, the company that it purchased it from um, was a small company. Uh, that had originally uh, originated with a, the, a developer who was uh, based at an academic medical center and had done a lot of, uh, of publicly funded work looking at nucleoside um, uh, uh, antiviral therapy, invested you know, about 60 or, or $62 million in the development of it leading up to the point at which the company was sold. So I think that these sorts of information help uh, in the discussion of how much Sovaldi should cost because I think that 
um, you know, in cases like Savaldi, it is um, probably true that even at the current very high price that the drug is cost effective. Um, but it is also very true that at its current price, um, it's, we are unable to afford it um, because the, the, the state um, Medicaid programs and prison systems that are right now trying to um, pay for Sovaldi are unable to afford the drug even at the very high price, which by a lot of different calculations is cost effective. Um, you know, if you look 20 or 30 years down the road at the, at the benefits that we're expecting to arise from the price. So I think that this sort of transparency um, in the development cost of the product um, can be part of the conversation about uh, negotiation and price setting and, and price determination, uh, excuse me, about, uh, you know, the, the, about, about these, what these new brand name drugs should cost. There are a lot of other, um, you know, transparency that is needed as well, such as transparency in the trials, um, you know, leading to the development of these products. But, I, you know, I think that when you're talking about state legislative actions right now that are, are thinking about transparency, I think that that is in general what you're talking about. Right. Um, so the, the payers, I mean, you talk about being unable to afford some of these drugs. I mean, we have, you know, the government is the biggest payer. The U.S. employers basically cover 150 million people in our country. There's prescribers out there. There's consumers. Um, there's a lot of different people in the group. And I'm just wondering what you think some of their different roles are in terms of what they can do to try to, to change it. Um, I know we talked a little bit about the Medicare negotiation and if the government could do that. I mean, would that really ripple through enough? What should everyone be doing? Um, who'd like to take that one? Okay, thank you. So um, first of all, just a quick word. I, I, will, I think transparency can uh, is attractive in, in many ways, but I'm not sure we really know what we're asking for at the end of the day, because if we don't think about what we pay for our iPhones by how much it costs to produce them. We, we really don't. We actually almost think of virtually nothing that we buy for how much it costs to produce in, in a market. So you know, there's a shaming function that I think people are interested in. They're, they're trying to find examples where it costs you almost nothing to produce and to make this pill for pennies and you're charging $750. Isn't that horrible? But it still doesn't actually answer the question, well, what is a sensible value-based price? Should we link it to how much it costs to produce or how much benefit it brings to patients? So I think we have to be kind of really clear what we're after when we're talking about transparency. But so back to what I think people can do. I mean. Again, part of this is using the tools that are currently in the toolbox. So I'll start with uh, insurers and in, indirectly kind of the purchasers, the employers who help design benefits. So some of this is already being done right now, but what if, you know, if they feel that the price is not in alignment with a value-based benchmark, however they want to determine that. <coughs> first of all, let's talk about positive incentives. If a company does come out and either sets a price or negotiates to a price that's within a value you know, kind of benchmark range, then it seems like we would want to give good things to that company. We would want to increase the use of this drug. And you could do that by kind of having a default process where it goes into a preferable tier in a drug formulary where patients do have to pay very little or even nothing out of pocket. What if doctors never had to worry about prior authorization, the calling and saying, can I please do it for this patient, what if all of that was eliminated if the company comes up with a price that fits a value-based benchmark, long-term and also thinking about affordability? On the obverse side, because uh, some people feel that if we're talking about carrots and sticks that the 
pharmaceutical company's refrigerator is already well stocked with carrots. So if we want to talk about more sticks, what could that be? Well, obviously you think about the opposite, the default towards a lower tier where patients have to pay more out of pocket, where maybe they have to fail another drug first to get coverage for it, uh, and doctors have to go through a lot of prior authorization to get to it. Um, all of those things can be done today with today's toolbox. It's not like that to do it, but it's something that I think purchasers are starting to warm up to now that they feel like maybe there will be some independent way to think about what a value-based price is. Policymakers, though, have a much more difficult but broader set of options. So what if, again, what if a company doesn't set its price in accordance with some value-based benchmark? Maybe that's where they have to try to justify why. So we have a value-based price benchmark. You're twice that. You have to justify to us why. And there's some commission in Massachusetts. There's a health policy commission. There could be other similar organizations or commissions formed in states to basically sit in judgment and try to figure out if the company has a good enough argument or not. Um, could you do other things? Could you even, if you do want to open up the Pandora's box of the FDA, could you extend exclusivity if a price is set and a reasonable value-based price benchmark? Because if we're getting good value with the brand name at a price, maybe we don't need the generic quite as soon. And conversely, would you want to extend exclusivity? Uh, I mean, sorry, reduce it if the price isn't adapted. So I think there are things that today, and, and patients can have a role too, patients and doctors. I mean, part of, part of the work that we do, and, and part of this discussion, I really hope it doesn't end up being locked in a room with economists and accountants. This has to be ultimately a discussion that involves patients and doctors. Because at the end of the day, the wonderful tool that ASCO has developed for individual patient and doctors doesn't get us to the answer of, well, how much are we as a society willing to pay with our limited and grouped pooled resources for a certain benefit for a cancer patient? Mm -hmm. We can all admit we're not going to pay a billion dollars if a drug extends life by another month. We can all say that, yes, we'll definitely want to pay for it if it's $100 for that month. But do we have the gumption to come together and to at least wrestle with the idea of where that line or a range might, might be? So for instance, actually tomorrow, just down the street at some medical school, I can't remember the, the name, um, there will be a, we'll have a public meeting on the high cholesterol drugs, the PCSK9 inhibitors. I think it was a topic of a formal, mm -hmm. former uh, yeah. roundtable here. And we are going to engage the public and an independent council will sit with doctors and public representatives will sit and take some votes on the value of those drugs at the list prices and help, we hope, continue to kind of spur the needed national dialogue on this issue. You know, just a couple things to add. Okay. Steve uh, actually has covered the waterfront nicely, but I can't help but think that um, we need to pay a fair amount of attention to innovation. The companies, the manufacturers, absolutely focus on this and say, this is where we, these are the dollars we use to innovate. And we all know that that's a complicated statement with probably many, many hidden dimensions to it. On the other hand, as a doctor and as viewing my patients, I want new drugs. Uh, these, some of these are nothing short of miraculous. I can't speak to the fairness about, you know, the pricing of Gleevec, but that drug has transformed lives, big time. Um, and there are a number of cancer drugs, too few in number in my opinion, but we really need to reward innovation in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, I had built into this framework 
of category for innovation. And I was shot down the, because the drug, you know, we, we, we vetted it with many from the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. And they said, well, what's innovation? You know, everybody thinks they have a new twist on it. And I'm not sure, but, you know, when you have a Herceptin and a Gleevec, that's an innovative first in market drug. And I think there ought to be an enormous incentive to manufacturers to produce things of that sort. But when you get to the sort of the humdrum drugs that are out there in many, many instances, why not build into the uh, something in the space between FDA and, <coughs> um, and let's say Medicare, a health technology assessment um, entity that is completely independent or as independent as we can make it. And do something that the Europeans are doing all the time, which is essentially give scores to, uh, you know, and ASCO's come up with its value framework, NCCN is developing a sort of an analogous one. Right. I think in the cancer space, if there was the opportunity to harmonize these ideas just within the oncology community, that for one, could represent an enormous help to any independent body that was willing to tackle this kind of a thing in the space between the FDA approval and mm -hmm. the actual utilization of these ag new agents. I would point out that since the majority of the Gleevex and Herceptins in the world aren't necessarily originating from manufacturers that you don't have to necessarily worry about that as much as long as at the same time you're increasing funding for NIH and other publicly funded science through which these transformative new discoveries are uh, are available. And I do think it is relevant how much a product costs when you're thinking about how much you're selling for. Well, one point, actually, I know Elizabeth Warren came up with an idea once that for pharmaceutical companies that break the law, they would have to pay a fine directly to NIH. To kind of, <laughs> she called it a swear jar. She said they make a mistake, they have to put that money right away. Uh, another potential stick, if you will, is that, again, if, if we give companies a monopoly for a purpose. It's to stimulate that future innovation that we want and to reward them in the near term as well. But there has to be some responsibility or some, again, carrots or sticks. So maybe one stick would be if they misuse that monopoly by pricing it too high, beyond, way beyond a value-based benchmark, maybe they have to pay a fine or a fee back to NIH, especially because if, again, if we do the drug transparency around how the, the drug was created and the costs that came from NIH research, et cetera. If they're reaping tremendous benefits beyond a value benchmark for a drug that they didn't even have that much risk because they took it over after it had been largely developed with federal funding, that doesn't, in a sense, meet the goals that we set up for having a monopoly. It's to encourage them to take greater risk. So in that kind of setting in particular, you would think they would make some sense to consider a payment back to NIH in some way as, again, one of the potential sticks to try to change the balance of incentives that companies have. Thank you. We have some questions, Lisa, from yes, online. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. We have a lot of questions online, so I'm just going to focus, if we can, on online questions today. Um, we have a very active chat. Here's one. Uh, Valiant is under scrutiny for its ties to a few specialty pharmacies that provide drugs directly to patients and work out reimbursement with insurers after the fact. Are you aware of any role specialty pharmacies play in fueling drug price increases? How does that work and can something be done about it? Well, um, one of the ways that this kind of um, system can help uh, promote high drug prices is by controlling the supply of the drug 
um, and potentially preventing um, generic manufacturers from obtaining supplies, the other generic manufacturers from obtaining supplies of the drug so that they can go through their own, uh, if they want to enter the market and compete against Valiant's products by, uh, by uh, obtaining their own samples of it to do the bioequivalency test that they need for, um, for FDA approval of a competing product. So that might be one way that these kinds of arrangements can help um, maintain high prices. And I, so I think that, that a lot of these kinds of relationships are in the category of helping uh, boost and bolster high prices, but aren't necessarily, you know, the, originally the prices come, are originally set by the manufacturers. And I would think, I mean, I think it's early days and people starting to, which, which really fascinating again is how much attention is now swung around to focus on the whole pipeline and business models of how drugs reach American patients. And it's very complicated, but there may well be some relationships that, are, that become kind of anti-competitive. So the relationships between manufacturers and specialty pharmacies is likely to be an area where people take a little bit. And I'm not claiming that it is necessarily anti-competitive in the vast majority of cases, but I know that there's a lot of interest in, in looking a little bit more deeply at some of these relationships. Thank you, thank you. Uh, this is submitted by Savannah Bailey on behalf of Bert Lang, CEO of Phoenix. Biosimilars in Europe and Australia have been proven to bring down specialty drug costs and increase patient access. Can biosimilars be part of the drug pricing solution in the U.S.? And if so, what policies need to be put in place to support the growth of the biosimilars market in the U.S.? I'll We've had I'll a couple questions on biosimilars. So, one of the so as I said in my initial remarks, with the, the, you know one of the generic drugs are one of the most important uh, tools that we have to try to lower drug prices. And mm -hmm. um, it, it, traditionally, biologic drugs have been excluded from the uh, generic drug um, system. That changed in about 2010 when Congress uh, passed a law creating a, um, a system f through which biosimilars. Uh, which are sort of like generic versions of biologic drugs and could therefore introduce some competition into the biologics market could be produced. Um, unfortunately, it's been very delayed and being implemented. And so even though there are a lot of biosimilars on the market in Europe that are being uh, you know, effectively uh, used to reduce prices and are being safely taken by patients, um, we don't have them yet in the US. Actually, the very first biosimilar hit the market uh, last month. Um, there are a lot of other ones that are um, waiting for um, FDA review and approval. And I think what is, what is needed to help bring those to market uh, expeditiously is uh, greater guidance from the FDA uh, uh, about what sorts of studies are needed uh, in order to demonstrate sufficiently that your biologic product is similar enough to another product that you can be uh, approved as a biosimilar. Uh, once that does happen, and I think we are at the beginning stages of that happening, it's going slower than I'd like it to be, but I think we will start to get there over the next couple of years. I do think that biosimilars will help um, you know, in some areas of the marketplace where there are very old, non-patent protected um, biologic drugs that are still widely sold for very high prices and helping reduce those prices. Great, thank you. I'll, here's another one, and I encourage everyone to go on the chat. There are a lot of people on there, and the conversation will continue on there after we're done here. 
All of the potential solutions discussed here will take time. We regularly hear from Americans who simply can't afford their meds. What's your opinion about legalizing drug importation from licensed and safe international online pharmacies so that patients can access affordable medication now? Well, none of these questions are easy. This was a... a a policy solution, if you can call it that, that um, was you know widely discussed prior to the implementation of Medicare Part D, when American seniors, in particular, were really burdened with the cost of uh, paying for their prescription drugs without without a pharmacy benefit. Mm -hmm. and, and so, uh, you know, I think that ultimately this solution is. Uh, it's somewhat limited the extent to which people will go online uh, to buy drugs from other countries. The manufacturers, of course, uh, try to prevent reimportation or importation of such products because it prevents them from practicing what economists call price discrimination, which sounds like a derogatory term. It is really just a descriptive one. Uh, price discrimination, just as, as Aaron was talking about, the VA pays lower prices than uh, my PBM does. Manufacturers price differentially to lots of different buyers. And if, if they cannot price differentially, that means they're going to have to raise prices to other buyers. Ultimately, something like that would happen and so uh, it's not clear that this is really a policy solution. I hear that the questioner is saying, what can we do now for people in need uh, to, uh, to ensure equity and access? Personally, I think solutions uh, such as, uh, as coverage expansions or other protections at the individual consumer level may be a better Band-Aid, albeit a Band-Aid as well. Really thinking more about pricing within the country, I think, is in our long-term interest. And I, and I would also add that, that it, you know, the FDA does permit people to import drugs for their own personal use in these extreme circumstances mm -hmm. where you know you can't afford it in the adult in, in this you know like this Daraprim case you, you can't afford it but you essentially de desperately need it um, I would agree though with Meredith that a better way of trying to solve this problem right now is by bringing up the problem with your doctor using cost-effective generic drugs if they're available and discussing what uh, the treatment options are um, with your physician um, and letting them know about uh, the, the cost issues that you're having. In a lot of cases, these conversations, unfortunately, are not happening between doctors and patients. And I think that the very first step um, in trying to address something today would be to bring up these questions with your physician. Well, frequently there are lower cost alternatives that don't require importation of a drug. I mean, this came up repeatedly in the context of breast cancer care, hormonal therapy thereof, when the newer, then newer drugs were on patent protection, um, the so-called aromatase inhibitors, they were extremely expensive. And I had more than a few patients coming to me saying, we're in the donut hole. My husband's hypertensive drugs and this and that, and now my meds, I can't do it. And basically, there were more than a few patients in whom I gave them a very detailed explanation of the magnitude of difference between these aromatase inhibitors and let's say a conventional, less costly drug like tamoxifen, and oftentimes, you know, I think you can get to a sweet spot with a patient that seems very, very reasonable. But the other point that Aaron makes is excellent. I've been in a situation in which, uh, you may remember, there were shortages of a number of anti-cancer drugs, mm -hmm. like adriamycin um, or methotrexate. 
And um, on behalf of a, a patient, I remember going through the legwork, and it really is quite a lot of legwork, interacting with the FDA to make sure it was legal and then a distributor from abroad. But indeed, a doctor can uh, essentially arrange for the importation of a drug for a particular patient. Hardly a problem being solved at a national scale, but on an individual well, level. Uh, but let's say we did want to solve this on a <laughs> national scale. Uh, just to wrap up now, I wonder if I could get a very quick uh, policy takeaway from each of our panelists down the row. We'll start this time with Meredith. <laughs> Great. Well, I think many of the solutions that we've talked about at this table are relevant. First, this is going to require a complex set of changes. Uh, first and foremost, we need to generate and disseminate better information on the value of the products that we're using, and as well as the out-of-pocket cost implications for patients. And payers and policymakers need to implement a number of strategies to encourage pharmaceutical companies to bring their prices in line with value and also encourage patients and doctors to use the highest value products. I would echo that. I think that we need to have some kind of a mutually agreed upon um, way of valuing drugs in the cancer space for sure. Uh, other areas I think are just as relevant. Um, that's, uh, you know, that per primum I think is, is the, the major thing that I think will, will help because I do believe that consumers will not wish to pay for something that's low in value, knowing that the cost is ridiculous. And the insurers who are their surrogates will absolutely refuse. So what you need is a standard that's mutually agreed upon and not subject to television advertisement or some other lobbying of doctors one by one, but rather a systematic way of saying, yes, this is low, medium, or high in value. Um, the second thing I'd like to toy with just in um, the cancer space is paying for drugs when they work and not paying for them when they don't. Okay. So I guess I would just conclude by saying it, it's amazing that in our advanced economy, Americans are at the same time getting tremendously ripped off with drugs and getting tremendous value. And we almost never know when. When we're getting ripped off or when we're getting good value. That has to change. And I think it's not just drugs. It really is across the healthcare system. But drugs have somehow been outside the movements amongst hospitals and physician groups to try to become accountable for both the quality and the cost of care. We need to figure out how to bring in, as a perspective, um, drug and device makers and others. So in my mind, the question is, is not really the price, it's the value. And how do we, as Lowell said, how do we come to a place where we're able to talk about how we determine value and how we develop the mechanisms to make that determination get some teeth. And it is going to take a lot of aligned work and it's going to take the public to get involved. This is a, a political issue par excellence. Um, if the public gets involved and stays involved, we'll make some progress. So I would say that I'm thrilled that we're having this conversation. I, you know, I think that this is a, you know, long overdue in our healthcare system and I'm you know, glad to see that many different stakeholders are involved and I'm um, you know, cautiously optimistic that, uh, that we'll get some great you know, new data-driven policies coming out of this and I would just echo that you know, there is a lot of waste and inefficiency in the, um, in the drug cost and drug payment system and I think we need to be really vigilant in trying to reduce that um, so that when uh, you know, an important transformative new drug comes along, we have the funds 
um, you know, to adequately pay for it and give it to the and get it to the people who need it, which is you know not what we're doing right now with Savaldi um, or or you know a similar drug in that circumstance. So um, anyway, so I think that it's uh, it's wonderful that these kinds of conversations are going on, and I would encourage people at home to continue to have them with their doctor and more importantly with their uh, congressman. And for our viewers, you can continue this conversation at the forum website, forumhsph.org. Also, just want to ask everyone, if you could, to tune in to the next forum. That's the Modern Slave Trade Public Health Impacts on Tuesday, November 10th, same time, 1230. And thank you for joining us today. been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.